Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about the Electoral College, the system the United States uses to count its votes after presidential elections. I like the idea of hitting this topic in what is known as an off-year for U.S. election cycles, and I like doing it after the election rather than before. In this particular year, many congressional seats are up for election, all of the House of Representatives and a third of the Senate. But this is not the year for the presidential elections, and the perspective that I'm going to offer always seems to be a little bit self-serving if it's offered when the Electoral College is actually doing its constitutional job. But before I go into the arguments for and against the Electoral College, it may be a good time to talk about the election that we just experienced in the United States of America, the off-year election, where you very often see a president who was newly elected two years earlier lose some of his support in Congress. Not at all unusual. While the ideological views of the Tea Party movement within the Republican Party, because let's be honest, it's a Republican Party group, may have influenced the elections and helped the Republicans in some respects. Certainly in states like Delaware, Nevada, and Alaska, the Tea Party was not much of a help at all. As as it stands right now, we don't really know who has won the senatorial race in Alaska. We figure it's going to be a Republican, but what we don't know is whether it's going to be the incumbent Republican, who ran as a write-in vote, or the Tea Party challenger. What we do know is that the Tea Party challenger who won the Republican primary and stood as the Republican nominee didn't get as many votes as the write-in candidate. And the only thing we're not sure about is whether the write-in candidate was all for the incumbent Republican who had to run sort of independently, or whether or not there were too many votes for Mickey Mouse or whoever else that might have taken the uh, votes away. So the write-in won, but did this particular write-in candidate win? I don't know enough about U.S. history to say whether this is an unprecedented moment, but I do know that it is unique and therefore is going to be memorable. In the aftermath of the elections, I just have a couple of quick thoughts. First, I don't believe I've ever received as many telemarketing junk spam phone calls during the era before you had the ability to be on the do not call list and block those callers. I don't think I ever got as many of these kind of nuisance phone calls before that time as I have now from political candidates. And it raises a somewhat conspiratorial thought in my head, and I don't know how you would get the research to answer this question one way or the other. But here goes. At the risk of sounding just a little bit paranoid, because not being really in any way committed to either one of the two political parties, considering myself to be a radical moderate, or what I would call beyond liberal and conservative. I don't need a camp to protect my points of view. My points of view are free to roam dangerously. I'm a free-roaming political thinker in this respect. But I wonder... If you were a uh, Republican who early on got a phone call from a real human being and answered questions in their survey and told them that you were going to vote exactly the way they wanted you to vote, whether that was going to look like a Tea Party sort of an approach or whether that was simply going to be an anti-Democrat, anti-Obama sort of an approach, if you answered all those questions the right way, would you have gotten less nuisance phone calls as the political preparation cycle wore on? 
And if from a Democrat perspective, if you'd answered the questions of a Democrat pollster, of course, I didn't get that many calls from Democrats. Most of the calls I got were calls coming to me from either Republicans or independent conservatives or Tea Party people. But the thing I wonder is, did they harass their their own supporters as much as they harass those of us who at least look like independents? Now, I don't believe I was an independent in this particular campaign. I was an independent in the sense that I voted for a lot of independent candidates. I didn't cast a single vote for either a Republican or a Democrat when there was an independent choice to be made. But I'm wondering if that independent stance of mine didn't lead to more phone calls, because what do you have to lose by harassing somebody who doesn't want to you know, vote a party line? You may annoy them to the point where they won't vote for you, but they probably weren't going to vote for you anyway. They certainly weren't going to vote a straight party ticket for you. And maybe you annoy them to the extent that they consider not going to the polls at all. Maybe you leave such a bad taste in their mouth that they disengage from the political process altogether. I'm going to offer the idea, sort of a conciliatory notion, that none of these conspiracy theories are true. That probably the methodology that we use today from a telemarketing perspective is one that even in the political realm is pretty random and indiscriminate. And that probably there isn't a mechanism in place for you know, a particular um, third-party group or political action committee making these phone calls to know who they're even calling. In fact, most of the phone calls I received were simply computerized. But it's certainly worth noting that a lot of voters were, if not put off, at least a little bit turned off by the amount of just rhetoric coming to you, not just from the television and from the radio, but also on your phone calls. I guarantee in the last four weeks, I've received more phone calls from people who didn't know who I am and didn't really care that much who I am, just wanted me to vote in a particular way, than from anybody that I actually know personally. It almost makes the process of having a land-based telephone line worthless. The other thought that I had, a friend of mine you know, sent a note and said, you know, can we all just get along now? You know, now that the elections are over, can the bipartisanship stop? And can we begin forging a new direction? Can we start solving our problems? And I got news for you. I don't think the two main political parties in this country have any interest whatsoever in solving our problems. Why should they? Most of the problems that we face are problems that could have been solved years ago if the political parties' platforms could be taken at face value. I'm going to get to this topic again in a couple of weeks and talk very specifically about certain political issues that Republicans say are theirs and certain political approaches that Democrats claim is theirs. And why are we still arguing about these things 50 years later? Certainly, if if these political parties with the kind of money we're talking about literally have a billion dollars spent with that kind of money, certainly we can come up with the resources we need to solve a problem to address an issue. I, on the other hand, believe that this is more likely a case where the Republicans and Democrats each have different sides they've carved out on certain issues, particularly so, you know, social issues that really generate a lot of emotion and, and get a lot of anger out there so that they can actually not do anything about it. I mean, the last thing in the world the Republicans want to do is solve the abortion crisis in this country. If you do that, what in the world are you going to use to raise money about the last thing in the world that the Democrats really want to do is generate once and for all an equality for everyone that makes no distinctions based on race, color, creed, sexual orientation, 
Because what in the world are you going to scare people about and are raising money about? So I don't believe that there's any reason to think that this particular mid-year election cycle made things any worse. And I also don't think that there's any reason to think that there's hope that it made things any better. Not as long as you have Republicans and Democrats being funded, and in often cases, funded by the exact same people, you're not going to get any meaningful change. I wanted to be part of a growing number of people voting independent, not getting discouraged and annoyed at all the spam and refusing to participate in the political process at all. That's the wrong answer. The right answer is voting independent. Now, I've had people in my family say, hey, aren't you worried about whether or not you might accidentally elect this person that you don't really know who's platform isn't what you really want. You know what? I, I live for the day that I actually have to worry about whether or not my vote for the Green Party is going to put a Green Party candidate in office. I'll deal with that problem when I get to it. In the meantime, the problem I'm trying to solve is making sure that if there truly are independent spirits in either one of these two main political parties who are only there because they have to be and would really rather speak their mind, who would really rather take some aggressive, bold action both in terms of new direction, but also in terms of compromise to address and solve issues, that they can't do it when they're being paid off, and they can't do it when they're following what their party's platform tells them they have to do. But why would they go independent when the American people have not given them any indication that we'll vote for independence? Well, I, for one, did the patriotic thing this year. I voted independent. The way I've worded it is this, and if I'm repeating myself, I apologize, but if you really go to the polls and feel like, you know what, I'm not real happy with either one of these two political parties, but I'm going to hold my nose and vote for the lesser of two evils, that I think that the Democrats can do things a lot better than they are, but at least they're not the Republicans. Or perhaps in my case, for many years, the Republicans need to do a lot better than they are, but at least they're not the Democrats. That in either case, when you're going to the polls saying, well, I'm going to do the lesser of two evils today, you still have done evil. By your own admission, you went to the polls to do the lesser of two evils. No matter what you've done, what you've done is evil. I really feel like for the first time in a long time, maybe this election cycle and the one before it, I have gone to the polls with an actual intent and ability to not do anything evil. When's the last time you can make that claim? Because I'm proud of every single candidate that I voted for, even the ones that I've never really gotten that much information on, because they've had the courage to run as an independent. One of these days, we're going to see, hopefully, a synergy between people who are running in a dissent against the, the situation that we're in today, with the way money has completely you know, driven everything in our political process, and again, you have you know, maybe an entity like a bank or an insurance company or a political action committee giving money to both sides. Now ask yourself the question, if you've got a firmly entrenched pro-choice position, which I do not, or a firmly entrenched pro-life position, which I do not, how comfortable can you be when you've got entities who are giving money to both sides at the same time? Now, Maybe I could have at some point in my lifetime taken solace that perhaps this political action committee or this insurance company or this investment group is giving to this political party or to both political parties because they're seeking compromise. But I don't think that's true. I think instead what they're seeking is status quo. Well, the closest we've come in the last couple of decades to having the status quo genuinely upset 
was the year 2000. And in the year 2000, a couple of interesting things kind of came together in a bit of a perfect storm at the at the voting booth. It happened nationwide, despite the fact that we kind of conceive of it happening primarily in Florida. But what you ended up with was, and not for the first time in our history, it's important to note, this is not an unusual or impossible occurrence. It's not that special. But maybe for the first time in you know, a very, very long time, you had one candidate win the popular vote with another candidate winning the Electoral College. To me, pretty good evidence that both candidates were highly suspect to begin with. I've said on a previous episode of Inappropriate Conversations that at that point in time, there was no way I could vote for Al Gore. Could not vote for somebody who was in favor of censorship, and particularly somebody who, in a very specific way, he and his wife in particular, threatened the company that I worked for, threatened the livelihood that, that I was using to support my family. There was no reason I could conceive of voting for Al Gore. But you know what? I also couldn't conceive of voting for George W. Bush either. There's two reasons for that. First, I did not want to reward the Republican Party, my party at the time from a political affiliation perspective. I did not want to reward them for the way they managed the impeachment scandal and some of the things that led up to that in the case of, of the, the end of the Clinton presidency. That's a very complex issue, not what I'm going to get into now. But I'd essentially said to myself, any candidate who was part of that, either directly, you know, like a, a U.S. senator who, you know, who cast votes to impeach, or indirectly, in the case of this case, George W. Bush, uh, making statements publicly that he was in favor of impeachment, he couldn't have my vote either. So in that particular year, I voted for a third party, and it was perhaps the most, the most fringe vote I've ever cast, the, the vote that was least likely to elect that I've ever cast. But, you know, that's a different story for a different day. It's enough to say that maybe a lot of the American people agreed with me. You know, and, and again, they voted the lesser of two evils. Unlike me, they didn't cast a vote for somebody who was not associated with one of those two political parties. But you saw a lot of split down the line where, again, we ended up in a very strange place where the votes nestled into corners where the combination of votes at the state level ended up, from my perspective, ultimately electing Bush, where the popular vote, beyond any question of a doubt, favored Gore, not to a huge degree, you know, uh, maybe a big number from a plurality perspective, but not a big number when it comes to a, a percentage of majority, because the race was exactly that tight. So at that time, a firestorm erupted, and you'd hear a lot of people on both, really both sides of the political spectrum, suggesting that it was time we got rid of the Electoral College. Now, there are things about the U.S. system that I don't like. The Electoral College, if you, if you uh, read the Constitution and the supporting documentation surrounding that period in time carefully, it does make it clear that there's a few things that I'd be uncomfortable with. Uh, in, in most states, or at least many states, the Electoral College does give the right to that individual to simply ignore whatever happened in the polls and cast a vote however that person may want. And, and so there, there's a, this sort of a parochial sense about it that maybe the uh, quote-unquote elector is a very special individual who ought to be able to speak for the people who may be too ignorant to know what they were doing when they went to the polls and voted. That part makes me uncomfortable. But there are parts about the Electoral College that I that really and truly like. And I think it's incredibly short-sighted for anyone to think that because we would have preferred Al Gore to be our president, that we walk away from it. And, and I offer this challenge to anyone who disagrees with me. If we come along in the next election cycle and, you know, 
Obama's running again for re-election, and he's running against somebody called any Republican out there. And any Republican out there wins the popular vote. But again, because of the way the votes you know, add up by state, Obama wins the uh, Electoral College vote. I'd be very curious to know whether the same people who complained about the way Gore Bush played out would also at that point suggest that their own candidate, in this case perhaps Obama, voluntarily stepped down, voluntarily declined the win that he earned at the polls based on the way the Constitution's written and the way the Electoral College works, would you walk away from that political victory and say, no, uh, I don't want to be a hypocrite, I want to put my money where my mouth is, and everything that I said was true about Bush, I'm going to say is now true about Obama, and if you know 50 plus percent of the American people don't support you from a nationwide perspective and a in a popular vote rolled up to a total, you should really step down. I'm guessing that the powers that be in the Democratic Party would respond the same way that the Republicans did in the year 2000, with or without interaction from the U.S. Supreme Court. Save that idea for another day. Maybe I'm wrong. And maybe we'll never know, but I have a sense that when the last votes in Florida were properly counted and properly measured, we would have come away with Bush winning Florida and really be facing this legitimate dilemma of how do we come to terms with or how do we make our peace with the idea that the winner of the Electoral College vote is the President of the United States, really without regard for what the popular vote adds up to be at all. There was accusations about disenfranchisement accusations that the majority wasn't ruling. We're not a pure democratic system where majority has power and majority rules. We're a democratic republic, and we're a republic made up of independent states. So maybe that's a good place for us to begin and hit this topic of the Electoral College. Arguments against the Electoral College invest too much importance in the so-called popular vote and too little importance into what the state means in the United States of America. These are, after all, the states being the form of government that the U.S. Constitution grants the most authority to, at least on paper. It's hard to read the first ten um, amendments, and number ten in particular, and not come away with a sense that our founding fathers wanted most of the authority, power, and control invested in the states. States are important. And the system that we have forces politicians to concern themselves with the needs of state on a state-by-state basis. This actually is a critical concept. And it cuts to the idea that the United States itself, if only from a geographical perspective, is a huge area where there's going to be regional and even sub-regional differences that make a huge impact on the individual. And the President of the United States, or whoever's campaigning for that job, needs to hear what the issues are, you know, in that region and sub-regional level. Look at it this way. A landslide in as many as a dozen or so of the biggest states could sway an election to such an extent that the rest of the electors wouldn't matter. Let me say that again. If you are a candidate who can capture enough of the right states, generate sort of a landslide of appeal, you really don't need to hear the will of all 50 states to get what it is you want. When you think about it, you look at U.S. population statistics, and the document that I have in front of me, I pulled, it must have been back there in 2000 or very early 2001 at the latest, to try to get a sense of where we stood from data that we had available state by state. We have some states, you know, like uh, North and South Dakota, Delaware, Alaska, Vermont, Wyoming, 
where you're not even really talking about a million people. You have less than a million people in play there. And that just can't compare to the more than 33 million in California, the more than 20 million in Texas, and the nearly 20 million in New York. So if you win the right number of states, and the state population does matter in the way the Electoral College functions, you're going to make a huge dent, and it's going to make a difference. This may be a good point for me to just stop and talk about, just very briefly, for anyone who hasn't either as an American studied their own civics well enough, or maybe for non-Americans not necessarily having a good understanding of how our system works, the U.S. legislative branch is divided up into two houses, with the House of Representatives having 435 members and the U.S. Senate having 100. And the main difference between the two is that one of the bodies, the House of Representatives, the one elected uh, completely and in its entirety every two years, where there's a two-year term involved, is based on population. So the more, um, the more people live in your state, the more representatives you'll have, or literally the more congressional districts you will have. The Senate always has two. So every state has two senators. And the way this kind of happens was when the Constitution was first being drafted, when we were going through a period of time of dancing between a a government based on the Articles of Confederacy versus the government that we have now, there was always a bit of a concern because if you were a – If you were a big state, you didn't want the fact that you had a lot of population and a lot of need uh, underrepresented. But if you were a small state, you didn't want to have absolutely no say, no power, no control, because you were always going to be outnumbered. So in one of the houses in the U.S. Senate, there is no outnumbering. all, All the states have equal representation. And in the House of Representatives, the largest states have the most have the most say. So what you end up with in the Electoral College is the combination of those two numbers. The number of electors from your state will always be the two senators plus the number of representatives. So no state's going to have less than three, no matter how small your population, no state's going to have less than three electors when the Electoral College votes are tallied up. But there is that baseline in place to at least provide some sort of an anchor so that the uh, impact of the population shift doesn't just turn the Electoral College into nothing more than a restatement of the popular vote, which, again, for some is the proposal that we're hearing. I'm all in favor of the idea that the electors, in this sense, have to do what their state voting said they would do. I'm all in favor of that. But I don't necessarily think that the Electoral College was ever designed to be a proportional vote. We're talking about some original constitutional concepts here. So let me ask a question. Going back to this idea that uh, you know the biggest states could actually sway an election to such an extent that the smaller states, you know, electors really wouldn't have any sway in what happened in the election itself. Do you know what that figure is? You know what the figure is for a system based on electoral college? As far as I can tell, and uh, it, it does, you know, it could potentially shift around as population shifts. But you're talking about eleven states at the least. 11 or 12 at the most, if the most populous states all voted together for the same candidate and the biggest states agreed with each other and you make the assumption that everybody in the state votes or there's a, you know, an exact proportional relationship between the number of people in each state who vote, so we kind of take the apathy out of, out of the math for the sake of argument, you only really need to win 11 or 12 states to become the president of the United States of America. Now, the good news is that, um, you know, it's pretty unlikely that you're going to get a single candidate in our current political system who is going to sway the voters in California, Texas, New York, Florida, Illinois, Pennsylvania, 
Ohio, Michigan, New Jersey, Georgia, and North Carolina equally. The other state I might toss into the mix there after North Carolina would be Virginia. You just have too many competing interests there. And for every state that we might think of as historically having more of a liberal mindset, like New York or California, you also have the balance in there from states like Texas or Georgia, and then the unpredictable qualities that you're going to get from states like Florida. So you have this sort of balancing act where even Ohio and Pennsylvania still very much considered to be swing states in almost every single election that comes up. So even relying on our current system for the Electoral College, it's fair to say that with only, you know, taking the votes from 11 or 12 states, you can become president of the United States. So here's my question. And it's a question that may require us to dig down deep and find our integrity and to use our intelligence. Here we go. Do you know what the figure is for a system that is based solely on the popular vote? How many states do you have to sway to become president of the United States in a system based on the popular vote. Now, before you answer that, remind me again of how important it is that every vote counts and that no one be disenfranchised, because that's really important, right? Isn't that what the problem in Florida was all about? Every vote needs to count. No one should be disenfranchised. We don't want people feeling like there's no good reason to waste their time inside a voting booth. Nerd Hurdles, the podcast that encourages you to dork in, nerd on, and geek out. I'm Jacob. And I'm Mandy. We talk about stuff that's too nerdy for people to like. Sometimes we drift off topic. You have to actually be on topic to drift off it. You make a good point. Nerd Hurdles. Okay, so I've raised a question. If as few as 11 states all voting in a block could come up with the uh, the right combination of electors to pick a president in the electoral college system, how many states would it be if you were using the same sort of math to pick using just the popular vote? And to ask the question more generally, would the figures be the same or would they be different? Well, let me use what I'm considering to be an extreme example. And I'm I'm not trying to exaggerate and use hyperbole here. What I'm trying to do is magnify the problem to get us to a place where we can understand at the extremes of the things we think we want are we still happy if we're not happy when we take something to a logical extreme not a crazy irresponsible extreme but a logical extreme if we're not happy there guess what we're not happy at all now we can be you know dissatisfied with the results of any election cycle from one one year to the next but it's the principles i think we have to get to the bottom of here so what I did with this 2000 census data, again, making the assumption that at least for the sake of argument, either everybody votes, so you get full voter participation, or there is a proportional quality state to state where the number of people who don't vote is equally proportional across all states. And what I've done is I've made the assumption that maybe the five, that five states in our country, in this case just happens to be the five most populous states in our country, have totally been committed to the idea of electing one individual president, and that four out of five people in those states have voted for that individual. Now, again, the likelihood of this combination of five states getting along and agreeing and making the same judgment, highly suspect. But please play with me here for a moment, because I'm not sure that the four out of five people voting, that, that kind of a voting block in a single state is that outrageous. It's probably more suspect 
to suggest that California, Texas, and New York would all feel the same way and vote the same way. But we saw some numbers in the most recent presidential election campaign in some states, states like Oklahoma, where the number of people voting for McCain was in the 70s and well into the 70s. So to suggest that maybe 80% of the people would cast a popular vote uh, in a single state for one particular candidate, even with the presence of credible third-party candidates like you know Cynthia McKinney, Ron Paul, Ralph Nader, if you could have 73 or so percent of people in Oklahoma voting for McCain, you could easily imagine that you could have an 80 to 20 block at some point in time. Again, I consider it to be a logical extreme. I'm not trying to manipulate the math to produce a number. I'm trying to produce some assumptions about the math that will help us glean something from them and take away something from them. To that end, I'm not going to the other states and saying, well, the other states voted 80, 20 the other way. Again, I grant it's a bit of a stretch to say that 80% of the people are going to agree on one candidate. And if you could get five states that did that, it would have an influence on the popular vote beyond any doubt. What I've done then is I've taken all the other states in the union, the 45 other states plus the District of Columbia, and said for you guys, the same candidate would only get 33% of the vote. So you have a a polarity here where some states would vote 80% in favor of one candidate while all the other states would vote 33% in favor of that candidate, where perhaps, you know, the 67% would go to the the other candidate. Those people really committed to our two-party system. I like that I'm describing it that way. It just keeps things simple to do so. So here's the question. If the five most populous states in our country cast 80% of their votes in favor of one candidate and the rest of the country is by what we might call pretty close to a supermajority opposed to that candidate, is that enough to elect the man president or the woman president? It absolutely is. In other words, the popular vote in this situation would take the opinion of five states at the expense of all others, whereas the electoral college vote using this exact same math would require 11 states, the 11 most populous states, to agree with each other Um, at the expense of all others, to sway who ultimately became the president of the United States. Now, to go back to it and to ask the question again in another way, did the Electoral College vote picking George W. Bush over Al Gore really represent a betrayal of our democracy? Or was the Electoral College vote, through the quirk of there being a difference between the two, actually doing the constitutional duty it's supposed to do? Because we would prefer, if we're serious about every vote counting and no one being disenfranchised and the integrity of the state governments within our federal union, within our republic, I don't think we want to be in a situation where we're going to let five states run the show any more than we're comfortable with 11 states running the show. But the truth of the matter is 11 is a much better number than five. At the very least, you have to do more. You have to do better than hopping on your plane and spending all of your time campaigning in the nation's largest metro areas. You've got to do something more than spending your time solely in Los Angeles, San Francisco, Dallas, Houston, New York City, Miami, Florida, Chicago, Illinois, Philadelphia, and Pittsburgh. You've got to do better than that. That's why when I'm, I'm just, in my case, bewildered to hear people from Western states, you know, states like Wyoming and Montana, who fall on the small side of this, who fall on the very bottom of the population ranking, uh, complaining about the popular vote in any way whatsoever. 
the Electoral College serves the same purpose for those kinds of states that it originally was designed to serve for the smaller states like Rhode Island, Vermont, and New Hampshire. The Founding Fathers put together the system that we have today for good reason. There were things that they had legitimate cause to be concerned about, that the populations in states like New York and Virginia could have overwhelmed the other 11, and Pennsylvania could have overwhelmed the other 10, to where it was very hard for some of the states, like Rhode Island, to conceive of it having representation in our representative democracy. So to me, the most important part about the Electoral College is the way it forces candidates to make the case and win their case state by state. You know, I don't know that I would have come up with the Electoral College on my own had I been drafting, you know, early versions of the Constitution back then. But I do know this. I will take that over the tyranny of the majority any day of the week. The only connection our different drummer this week makes to the topic of the Electoral College, in my mind, uh, stands on the issue of hypocrisy. Again, not trying to call anybody out, but if you had an opinion about every vote counting and your guy not winning the election in the year 2000, I think you might want to look at that from a slightly different perspective about what it means to say every vote doesn't count um, with a much more open-minded viewpoint of what the Electoral College does and what it's all about. George C. Scott has probably done more than any other actor, at least living today, in standing up to hypocrisy. He has compiled an impressive set of contributions to the art of acting, but he also turned down an Academy Award, specifically for the film Patton, largely based on his sense of the hypocrisy of actors and film studios playing favorites on a national stage. His other film credits of note include Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, Petulia, They Might Be Giants, They of the Dolphin, The Hospital, and The Changeling. We'll talk a little bit more about his acting credits in a moment, but first I'd like to talk a little bit about the moment in history where George C. Scott actually stood up and said, no, I'm not interested in winning this particular popularity contest. I won't be showing up and accepting an Oscar on this particular Academy Award night. Here's some quotes from George C. Scott and what what he actually had to say about it. I have nothing against Oscar. I know what he stands for, and it's terrific. And I think when people used to hang around and pat each other on the back and over a drink and dinner, it was wonderful. But when it comes to an, the international hoopla, when careers lived and died on whether or not you did or didn't get an Oscar, then it got out of hand. The Oscar Awards, the Academy Awards ceremonies, are a two-hour meat parade, a public display of contrived suspense for economic reasons. And essentially, George C. Scott said, I want no part of it. Now, he did show up to accept other acting awards in other venues, things like uh, American Film Institute Honors or um, the Actors Guild Awards. But the Academy Awards, he had an issue with, and rather than complaining about it as a sore loser when he didn't win, we're putting aside his differences with the way uh, the ceremony is handled when he did win. He put his money where his mouth was, and he said, no, I'm not going to play that game. I'm not going to accept your honor. Now, let's ask the question of whether or not George C. Scott had earned the honor of that award. And in my opinion, he absolutely did. We might not consider him up at the level of the very finest actors of our time. If we had to pick three or four people, he might not make the cut. But you know what? he would certainly be in the conversation for deciding who was in that list. 
And I'd like to cite him for four films in particular, two where he played generals and two where he played doctors. And in each case, one of the two playing the role for laughs and the other one playing the role uh, much more seriously. It goes without saying that um, Patton would be the, the, uh, the role that we think of most for George C. Scott and the role that we would probably cite him for when it comes to the serious acting of a general. He truly embodied the attitude of General uh, Patton in the 1970 film and earned the Oscar that he did turn around and refuse. One year later, he would appear in my favorite George C. Scott film, The Hospital, playing a doctor, and playing a doctor where his acting was serious, his persona was serious, but the film was the darkest of black comedies. So getting laughs from things like suicide attempts. The hospital wasn't necessarily trying to be edgy. It was simply trying to raise questions. Written by the same man who wrote Network later, with the same kind of tone that you'd see in the movie Network. So if the hospital was his... His, uh, you know, the key film that he played in where he was a doctor for laughs, his serious one for me is Petulia. And it's odd to talk about Petulia being a serious film because it was directed by Richard Lester. But you most often see Petulia cited as a British drama, uh, despite the fact that the director was you know, responsible for a lot of really great and somewhat zany uh, comedies. In this, in this case, uh, more of a, of a marital drama or a, a social relationship drama than one truly set inside the walls of a hospital. But his character, nevertheless, was a doctor. As far as playing a general for laughs, you don't really think of George C. Scott first and foremost when you're thinking of the high comic moments available in the black comedy Dr. Strangelove. You can understand somebody thinking of Peter Sellers three times before you got to George C. Scott because of the multiple roles that Sellers played in the film. Slim Pickens perhaps has more iconic scene-stealing moments in the Stanley Kubrick 1964 classic. However, there are moments where we do think of George C. Scott and his role as General Buck Turgidson, uh, not least of which is the, uh, the exclamation that there shouldn't be any fighting in the war room, um, the role that he played in that particular scene. So uh, there's a couple of generals and a couple of doctors, but really that's not the, the be-all and end-all for me. I enjoyed him in The Day of the Dolphin, which I thought was you know, a very flawed film, and frankly, a flawed book as well. But he made, he made it entertaining. Uh, I was there with him you know, all the way through that storytelling. And later on, a couple of films by him that I haven't seen that have you know, been highly regarded, The Changeling in particular, uh, viewed as one of the better you know, uh, atmospheric thrillers, uh, maybe a horror film. I, I describe it more as a thriller, again, having not seen it. And a movie that I've got right now upstairs ready to watch by my television called Rage, a 1972 film, one of three movies that George C. Scott is listed and credited as the director for. It looks like, from a critical perspective, it's not regarded as highly as the made-for-TV movie The Andersonville Trial, based on some of the events in the aftermath of the U.S. Civil War, but it's probably regarded much more highly than any other directorial effort of his. Rage was released theatrically elsewhere in the world, but I think it's probably uh, regarded as a made-for-TV movie in America. And I really like the period of the uh, late 60s and early 70s for made-for-TV films in America. And in Rage, he uh, both stars and directs as a Wyoming rancher who gets exposed to an army nerve gas. Uh, he becomes very ill, perhaps fatally ill, and his son dies. And he goes, at first seeking answers, 
and before it's all said and done, seeking revenge to try to uh, address the issue of how something like that could be done to him on his property. I think it really, um, from the from my vague memory of the early seventies, really did capture the spirit of, of Western American independence, of this notion, you know, that um, you know this get off my lawn kind of attitude that you might expect from the American West. The film that I got, I picked up because it, this is not the kind of movie you're gonna you're gonna rent on Netflix. I wouldn't imagine. Um, it's not the kind of thing you would ever find at a blockbuster back when blockbuster stores were filled to the gills with a whole variety of titles. In this case, I went to a website called Warner Archives. In fact, when you go to uh, warnerarchives.com, it redirects you to wbshop.com. And it was really at the Warner Brothers shop that I was able to find um, some of these old made-for-TV movies that I've really been looking for for quite some time. And I was very excited to see the list of titles that I was able to obtain in this manner. In addition to Rage, they had available films like The uh, the Doberman Gang and The, uh, the Amazing Dobermans. The Gathering, uh, Genesis 2, The Man from Atlantis, and some films which were originally released theatrically, but again, haven't been available on anything other than VHS, and as long as I can remember, uh, movies like All the Marbles, The Terminal Man, Doc Savage, Man of Bronze. So WB Archives, the WBShop.com, really doing a nice job of putting some titles that have been on the shelf for a long time and getting them into the hands of people, and that's where my copy of Rage has come from. Venturing from the movie Rage to the term Rage, I think it's probably important to mention that George C. Scott is another example of a different drummer who has elements of his uh, past life, his behavior, that I wouldn't necessarily endorse. He is one of the first to acknowledge that his, his temper has been a problem. Quoting Scott again, I became an actor to escape my own personality. Acting is the most therapeutic thing in the world. I think all the courage that I may, I may lack personally I have as an actor, or again later, my violent behavior is some sort of aberration, a character defect I'm not particularly proud of. The thing that I like about George C. Scott is his honesty. As an actor, you can feel that he is really uh, one, of those, one of those actors who would prefer to put a character on the screen instead of himself as a character, never a movie star as far as it goes. And um, one of those actors you see cropping up in films in ways that you wouldn't expect. Again, there may be people who have forgotten all about the fact that he had a key role to play in Dr. Strangelove. Um, he certainly is a supporting actor in every sense of the word in Anatomy of a Murder, which would be more of a vehicle for uh, Jimmy Stewart um, or even Ben Gazzara than for George C. Scott. So our different drummer this week, you know, a flawed personality, perhaps as flawed as some of the things that we have in our electoral process and our electoral system, but somebody that I've always enjoyed watching and somebody in whom I actually put a lot of stock. He's one of those actors, when I see his name on, on a film com, you know, coming up on one of the classic movie channels, I say, you know what, I automatically know that this is going to be worth my time. At some point, I will be able to reacquire or rediscover a copy of a film like They Might Be Giants. And at some point, I'm going to take advantage of the opportunity to see some of the films that he made in the late 70s and 80s, like The Changeling or um, Hardcore. So far, those opportunities haven't presented themselves to me, and I hope that I don't put it off until the time when watching those films that I haven't seen in a while, or perhaps haven't seen ever, is uh, reduced to an act of remembrance or memorial. Scott died on September 22nd, 1999. Anything I was going to do as a 10-year anniversary has long since passed.
You don't have to be particularly politically active or politically engaged. You don't have to be donating money to political causes or appearing on the political talk shows to speak politically into our system and to raise important questions and important issues. Quoting once again the actor George C. Scott in the character Dr. Bach from The Hospital, here's what he has to say in a moment of of extreme emotional breakdown. It's all rubbish, isn't it? I mean, transplants, antibodies, we can produce birth ectogenetically. We can clone people like carrots, and half the kids in this ghetto haven't even been inoculated for polio. We've established an enormous medical entity, and we are sicker than ever. We cure nothing. We heal nothing. The whole wretched world strangulating in front of our eyes. It scares me to think how much the words of Patty Chayefsky and the performance of George C. Scott spoken in 1971 have a lot to say, not just to our world today, but to our political process today. If you have a different opinion, you can certainly share that with me. Comments are enabled at the Podbean site. It's a http colon slash slash inappropriate conversations dot podbean dot com. I also can be reached via email at IC underscore Greg at hotmail dot com. Thanks for listening.